0: Today, welcome to our podcast series, In a Nutshell. Today, our topic is Green LNG. What is it? How can it help LNG players reduce carbon emissions? My name is Carl Beckman. I'm editor at Natural Gas World, and I'm speaking today with Stephen Miles, who's a fellow with the Baker Institute Center for Energy Studies at Rice University, and senior counsel with Baker Botts, and with Matthew. Fuzina, who is a special counsel at Baker Botts. Um, Until recently, natural gas was generally seen as a climate-friendly bridge fuel in the transition to a low-carbon economy. And to be sure, that's still the case, according to many experts. Um, The International Energy Agency and other experts uh, have noted that it's impossible to meet established climate goals by 2050, without natural gas. Nevertheless, there is increasing pressure from investors and policymakers on players in the natural gas sector to reduce their carbon emissions. So how can they do that? Um, In particular, how can players in the LNG industry respond to this challenge? Well, what they can do is to make their LNG green or greener how and, and what exactly does that mean? I will be discussing this question with my guests today, Stephen Miles and Matthew Fuzina. So um, last year, Stephen, um, you gave a presentation at an LNG conference and you wrote an article on the Forbes website, which for the first time gave an overview of the nascent market of so-called green LNG. And um, this address the issues that need to be resolved to further develop this market. But um, so before we turn to this analysis, though, um, let's first introduce you. Um, maybe you can tell me a little bit about yourself and explain what the Baker Institute for Public Policy is, and indeed what Baker bots is. Um, are the two Bakers related, I was wondering, or is that just a, a coincidence? So,
1: Carl, first of all, thank you for including us and thank you to uh, Natural Gas World and, and your audience for uh, giving us this opportunity to share some thoughts with you on the energy transition, particularly involving green LNG. Um, this has been a, a subject uh, that's come up in fairly short order the last two or three years. Uh, certainly, how to make uh, energy transition work, the role of natural gas, that's been an ongoing discussion and you pointed out some of the key points that natural gas and liquefied natural gas, which is just a way of transporting natural gas in a liquid state, uh, have been playing a key role in that in terms of uh, reducing the amount of what would otherwise be coal-fired power generation in much of the rest of the world, particularly Asia. Uh, but demands are much greater now. And so uh, this has been an area of interest of mine. I, uh, I, as you indicated, I wear two hats. I'm a fellow at the Baker Institute, uh, the Center for Energy Studies at Rice University, uh, and also senior counsel at Baker Bots. Are they related? Um, in a very, very distant way, yes. They both have uh, a Baker uh, in, the, uh, in the family name. Baker Institute was founded in 1993. Uh, by James A. Baker III, former Secretary of State, Secretary of Treasury, and he was Staff to the president. Um, his great-grandfather, I think I have that right, is the Baker in Baker Bots, going back to the mid-19th century. So that's the relationship. Um, the Baker Institute was founded for the purpose of creating informed, fact-driven policy analysis um, for all players and participants. Um, in the energy space in particular. Uh, we do a lot of work focusing on uh, international and U.S. Uh, public policy. Uh, and I'm proud to know that uh, for the last three years in the ranking of 8,000 institutions worldwide, public and private, uh, the Baker Institute was ranked the number one uh, energy think tank of all universities worldwide. So we're very, very proud of that. Uh, I'll let uh, Matt introduce himself and uh, and talk a little bit about Baker Botts. Great. Sure. Uh
2: Thank you, Stephen, and and Carl. I echo Stephen's uh, comments about thank you for really inviting us here today. As you know in the introduction, I'm a special counsel here at Baker Botts, and uh, Baker Botts is a really a global law firm. We have some 700 attorneys across 14 different offices, uh, scattered throughout the world, but mainly at centers where a lot of them where energy is a focus. Um, mm-hmm. With respect to our natural gas and LNG bona fides, we have represented uh, over 100 LNG projects uh, worldwide and been involved with them. And really recently, we've kind of been on the forefront of advising and creating kind of contractual solutions and structures for how these, the energy transition is really gonna work with, with LNG and how uh, reduced carbon content cargoes are gonna be delivered. On, on my end, I've been working uh, at Baker bots for a decade now, uh, really focused on LNG and LNG projects. I've focused my attention on projects out of the Gulf Coast as well as the uh, West Coast of North America, and uh, another part of my practice has been focused on LNG to project power projects as well. Okay. So that's my introduction, and I'll turn it back to you.
0: Yeah. So how's, how's it going in the LNG market at, at this moment? How are things? How's business? <laughs> <laughs>
2: business is good. Uh, of course, as you know, uh, 2020 was undoubtedly a, a challenging year. I think that was just kind of a trend in the energy markets generally, but we are certainly seeing a rebound uh, in the LNG space and the natural gas space. And I think there's just kind of a lot of kind of unbridled demand that is kind of uh, waiting to kind of be reintroduced to the market. And a lot of the players are really getting back involved. So we're seeing a lot of action.
0: Okay. So um, Stephen, to turn to you, I mean, you, um, Gave this presentation last year, you wrote an article for Forbes um, on green LNG. And that's what, a reason for us to to uh, call you and to talk to you about this. Uh, th- did you get a lot of uh, response uh, to that? We did. Yeah.
1: We, we, we got a lot of response to it. And, I, and in a very positive way, I'm excited at the interest. Um, when I proposed the abstract uh, for that uh, speech at GasTech uh, for September 2020, uh some people have said to me what is this What do you pro- we don't understand what it is you're proposing why is that and then by the time we actually got the the whole session together in september and the panel it seems like it was the topic du jour and now it's, it's kind of hard to go a day or two without there being some new announcement in the world where somebody is saying hey we're we're trying to sometimes i say green energy, sometimes i say have reduced carbon LNG, carbon neutral LNG. There are a variety of terms. We'll talk about that right. together here in a couple of moments. So uh, it's, you know, it's an area that is, um, uh, I would say, it's accelerating. Uh, but in doing so, it's kind of spinning in different directions. So it, it early efforts thus far have been sporadic, uh, uncoordinated, and divergent. And so the purpose of the article really was to try to at least, if not pull them all back together, that may be a bit too ambitious, at least to explain what those divergences are and, and what's going on in the market and the different approaches players are taking.
0: Okay, so, so would you say, because I was intrigued by one um, point you raised in your presentation, you said renewable energy is now competing with natural gas. Would you say that this has been a change a little bit that until recently, net uh renewables were seen as complementary really and now there's more uh, of a, a competition or a feeling of that well it's,
1: uh, i'll turn it over to matt in a second because i know he has some thoughts on this but i will just say that uh both are true that uh there has been competition there's more competition because the the price of renewables is steadily going down um, but we have challenges in terms of firming up wind and firming up solar um You can take different views on exactly what happened in Texas a month ago, but it's clear that grid reliability was a critical element and that um, it is gas needs to play an essential role in uh, providing integrity to the grid. Uh, And so it's there is competition. There is also the necessity of collaboration, at least until such time as we truly have an industrial scale battery, which we don't. Matt, do you want to add anything to that?
2: Yeah, I just really to echo Stephen, I think this idea of renewable competition is really something that, while it has may have accelerated recently, it's something that's not necessarily new. Uh, we've really been seeing well before this year, 2020 or whatnot, kind of really renewables uh, challenging natural gas, especially in some places where there have been open tenders for, for power or whatnot. And I think the natural gas industry is acutely aware of this competition right here. And I mean, I'm sure as your listeners are aware, um, this really has been kind of turbocharged in places by legislative fiat, where kind of uh, the legislator has kind of synthetically boosted demand for renewables and really increased their competitives in many places. Now, uh, of course, if you kind of look at this works going in the future, um, you kind of see natural gas continuing to expand and grow. However, uh, it's also looking like many companies in many many countries releasing their uh, kind of renewable portfolio standards are really going to increase the long-term installed capacity of renewables at a, at a more accelerated rate so i think in the long run this competition is definitely here to stay
0: right and there may, there may be differences across geographies as well right and in, in, in europe for example things may be very different from say asia or north america so but Oh, go ahead. Yeah, if you want to comment on that. that,
2: um... Yeah, no, I I think that's exactly right. I I think this is kind of an important point is that really this is going to be looked at on a geographic region by region basis. Mm -hmm. And it's really going to say a lot about the product of this kind of low carbon LNG as it really kind of resolves itself uh, potentially either on a global scale or on a regional scale really depending upon how this all shakes out. And that's really what the market is kind of determining right now. And I I think what this kind of means for the LNG and natural gas industry is that there really is some potential here that the market kind of fragmented into some really regional states, which is, as we know, very different than what the LNG industry is today, Mm -hmm. and which really is a liquid global commodity. So the question is, if that ever will occur, is this kind of in a sense a step backwards for the natural gas industry or is it really just the next evolution of the market? I think that's kind of to okay. be determined.
0: Well, that's an intriguing question, maybe a topic for another uh, <laughs> podcast. Um, before we turn to sort of the green LNG, I mean, Stephen, can you tell me something about the, the pressure that's currently coming mm-hmm. from investors and policymakers? I mean, we read these uh, announcements sometimes uh, big investment uh sort of uh, conglomerates and saying that uh, they will reduce their investments in in fossil fuels um what what's going on here
1: well you know you've really hit the nail on the head there there's a wide range of goals here i think there's there's general there's a general consensus that, uh, among players participants uh, throughout the industry that they want to do something to help the the climate situation but there's a range of different goals. So, for some parties out there, they look at um, you know, lower carbon or green LNG as sort of a way to get a good citizenship merit badge uh, in terms of public relations. fund. Mm. For others, it's uh, a matter of regulatory compliance. Uh, they need to uh, they need to comply with uh, whether it's EU regulations or, ca- or uh, California regulations, and they need to have a certain amount of carbon offset and reductions. For others, um, they're looking at ESG, uh, which is an acronym for environmental, um, sometimes social, sometimes sustainability, depending on your your use of the term, uh, and governance. ESG, and you're exactly right. Uh, large investor groups and smaller ones have said, "Hey, we don't, we want to invest uh, only or primarily in um, in uh, companies and projects that are going to have a green component to them." They're going to be good for the environment, for the climate. Um, An example of that is uh, the Principles for Responsible Investment, which has 3,100 signatories and um, $110 trillion uh, in assets owned by those signatories. And so they're they're looking to invest in ESG-relevant, ESG-qualified companies. Uh, And then lenders, uh, a group called the Partnership for Carbon Accounting Financials. Uh, has 70 members uh, with $90 trillion in assets. And they likewise said, we want to provide finance primarily to companies that uh, are doing the right thing in terms of climate and energy. So there's tremendous pressure, but there are different goals. So some companies are are really looking to green themselves up so that they can access capital. And then yet others are looking to uh, get a leg up in the market competition and selling against other LNG companies or natural gas companies, uh, maybe even charging a green premium if they could get away with it So uh, in the market. So there are different goals. And as we're going to talk about in a few minutes, that, that smattering or splattering of goals uh, gives us one of our challenges here in terms of going forward, because not everybody is looking to obtain the same benefits.
0: Right. So different goals and different methods that uh, makes for uh, transparency or, or a lack of transparency, perhaps, or at least okay. a, a lot of a lot of complexity. So that, that, let, let, let's look at the, some of the methods then that um, can be used to make LNG green or, or greener. Um, there is uh, there is bio LNG, there is uh, CCS, of course, carbon capture and storage. And there's the the possibility of uh, offsets, and if I'm missing any any message I'm I'm sure you will um, you will let me know. Um, maybe uh, we can talk about the bio LNG first. Um, you didn't pay particular uh, uh, not a lot of attention to this in your presentation. What do you think of the potential of bio LNG? It, 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 how how uh, large or limited is it
1: so there you're exactly right carl there are a number of ways in which one can reduce uh carbon and uh i guess just sort of to provide an overview some of the ways of of reducing carbon in natural gas would include reducing you know capturing methane emissions upstream uh reducing your flaring uh putting more efficient technology in your uh, liquefaction of, of natural gas uh, technology, um, using renewable energy to power compressors or power uh, electrification uh, equipment, um, to power um, uh, your liquefaction equipment. So there are a number of different steps that one can take, and then then there are ways of making, but none of those change the molecular composition of uh, of of the natural gas, which is about seventy five percent. Of the, um, of the carbon uh, associated with, with the molecules, and so bio-LNG is one way of addressing that. You take, uh, it comes primarily from two sources, uh, either from animal waste or from landfills, uh, and this is methane that's naturally producing. If, if you didn't capture it, it would escape into the atmosphere, and so when you capture it, even though it has methane associated with it, it's it's deemed to be neutral because it would otherwise be in the atmosphere anyway. So All right. Uh, the challenge, as you've noted, is it's it's and we wrote a later paper that addressed this, by the way, in some more detail. But um, the challenge is it's relatively small and it's isolated, it's local. So most of this goes, most of this methane goes by direct pipe to nearby power plants on a dedicated basis, or to sometimes to run tractors as biodiesel, uh, things of that sort. Uh, some industrial uses. Um, There was a recent announcement uh, just several days ago about a SPAC, a Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation that uh, listed on uh, one of the American stock exchanges that was going to purchase for a billion dollars some biomethane producing companies. And what was interesting about that, in addition to the size, that's increasing the scope, is um, they announced that they had um, sales agreements for this biogas with um, the University of, California, uh, education, collegiate, uh, University of California system which is probably dozens of colleges. And you're All thinking, right. well, well, how are they going to do that? Are they going to build pipelines to dozens of colleges? No, almost certainly not. I mean, they didn't say what they are going to do, but almost certainly not. They're probably going to be virtual sales. So right. the biogas will be captured. It'll probably be used locally or put into the grid. And there will be a virtual sales agreement. Somewhat like I'm thinking the virtual power agreements that corporations sign now for wind energy, even though they're not within 500 miles of, of a wind facility. So um, I think we'll start to see more of that. But from an LNG perspective, it it needs to be a lot bigger uh, and with with better pipeline capacity to LNG plants before it's a real factor there.
0: Right. Right. So valuable, but you know, not not uh, certainly not a silver bullet. It's a step and, forward. Yeah, yeah. So what about but CCS?
1: Sure, and I'll say by the way, um, hydrogen fits into a similar. This isn't a, a as you said. We do a whole podcast on hydrogen. A couple of them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there are announcements uh, that have been made about creating hydrogen uh, and then blending that into natural gas in a similar way, up to twenty percent as a drop-in fuel. Again, that's a way of reducing the overall carbon content in um, uh, in a pipeline of natural gas. Um, CCUS, so this is carbon capture uh, use and storage. And so as a general rule, what we're talking about is that an LNG liquefaction facility, uh, you would capture carbon and then you would uh, either there near, near the site or by dedicated transportation pipeline. And, uh, and there are CO2 pipelines and companies that are in this business, take that and inject it most likely into an underground uh, cavern or undersea cavern where it will stay, hopefully, forever. Um, and so, and and one gets, you know, one obviously reduces the, the carbon. It's uh, not just an offset. It's an actual carbon reduction uh, from the product. So we do see projects, um, there have been a couple in the past that have uh, large projects, one in Europe, Equinor, one in Australia, Gorgon, that have attempted to do this with varying success. Um, It's expensive, but there are um, investment incentives for this the United States, so-called 45Q, tax benefit. Uh, Europe, of course, has uh, strong support uh, for these carbon reduction technologies. And so we're bullish on CCUS, we think this is something that's going to move forward. Uh, it's somewhat like LNG in that it faces similar hurdles mm-hmm. big investment, you a lot of capital, you need clear regulatory um, environments. Um, so uh, you have questions about liabilities if it escapes and who's responsible. So, mm-hmm. it, like LNG and, and almost everything else the energy industry, uh, it's big capital and um, it's uh, it's going to do a lot but it has a ways to come
0: yeah how, how big do you think ccs can become uh, how big a part of the solution matt do you have a,
1: you have a view on that um, i mean it's a time and money trade-off right i mean
2: it, that's exactly right um in the near term i Don't know if it's the current near-term solution, but as the CCUS technology continues to develop, I I think definitely over the next decade, we're gonna see an increasing number of uh, projects, both in the LNG space, and as Stephen mentioned, the hydrogen space, that really incorporate some form of CCUS technology and storage into these projects. We'll
1: we'll have to see here on this side of the pond, we'll have to see what the Biden infrastructure bill ends up looking like Mm -hmm. in terms of how much money they want to pour into this. Uh, we we have we're we're very fortunate. We have along the U.S. Gulf Coast, and elsewhere, a number of very good sites for carbon storage. Right. Um, and we'll just have to see how much half the government wants to put into it.
0: Right. Right. Okay. So, what about offsets?
2: Sure. So, so when you consider offsets, kind of one of the other kind of tools in the low carbon LNG toolbox, uh, as Stephen mentioned, you have to consider what you can't really reduce in the kind of the molecular component of the carbon content of that LNG, you need to offset. And so what an offset is, it essentially is a kind of certificate you receive that provides for the offsetting of uh, kind of essentially a metric ton of carbon uh, emissions. And today in the market, there are really two types of offsets. You got your kind of your compliance offsets and you got what are known as voluntary offsets. Now, compliance offsets, these are offsets that are issued by kind of a regulatory authority in a given jurisdiction, for example, whether under the UN or the EU or the state of California, that really gives you the right to offset an an amount of carbon associated with that specific regulatory scheme. And oftentimes these offsets are traded on primary and secondary markets. Prices are fairly transparent and we've seen um, sometimes very low cost uh, associated with these offsets, whether that's because of the way the market is issued or just because that's kind of where the supply and demand has ended up. Now on the other side of the uh, ledger, you have what are known as voluntary offsets. And these are really offsets that are issued outside of the compliance regime. And these are a little more black box. Oftentimes companies will uh, develop what are known as nature-based products. And under these products, they will issue a number of offsets. and uh, and really, these offsets are directly associated with these products, with with mm-hmm. these projects. Now, of course, when you start thinking about that. There's a lot of issues. Uh, for example, how many credits come from those projects? Are they verified or whatnot? And kind of uh, more commonly today, we are starting to see really kind of uh international carbon offset standards really coming in and overseeing these projects and issuing credits under their specific ledgers and registries to kind of avoid any of these accounting issues yeah. that have historically kind of plagued the offset market
0: right because uh, you you were saying about the compliant off- offsets uh some of them are very uh, low priced i mean the price differences are huge aren't they
2: that's exactly right. I mean, we have seen difference in not just, shall we say, in, in cents difference, but uh, kind of almost, you know, 40 or $50 for in some of the All difference over, yeah. in prices of these credits, which is just when you when you start putting that towards the overall cost of an LNG cargo, uh, the differences are really astronomical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so talking about the difference in prices between uh, compliance offsets and voluntary offsets, we, we are really kind of seeing in the market oftentimes there is a big difference in price. Uh, Compliance offsets we've seen, as we mentioned, very low cost sometimes, not always, but kind of depending where the market shakes out. But some of these initial voluntary offset prices uh, we've seen have been substantially and materially uh, much higher in price to the sense that we we have heard offerings on the market, up to you know 20 30 40 times the cost of the compliance offsets that could be similarly acquired that's that's not to say they could be acquired because those compliance offsets oftentimes need to be used in a specific market and are not appropriate but it just shows that there is a, a very much still a divergence in these markets and uh this really uh, yeah. hasn't, hasn't yet reached equilibrium
0: Right. So that, that would mean if I look looked at this market as an external observer, say, you know, I would find it uh, not quite credible at, at this moment, you know, given all the different methods that exist and given all the, the, the differences in prices. What do you think could be done to, to improve credibility?
2: Uh, to To improve credibility, I think one of the ways that really the credibility is being improved is that um, many of these uh, companies that are seeking offsets are really doing through through these international registries, whether that be kind of the American Carbon Registry, uh, VCS, um, other uh, under the specific UN protocols. And what is important when you acquire offsets through these uh, through these standards is that these standards are making the claim that they are going to track the amount of carbon content that are coming out of these projects. They are not gonna gonna be any issues of additionality or double counting or -hmm. any other questions that gives serious rise to concerns. And as a result that you can really trust trust these offsets. And that's really kind of an important point going forward because if there's gonna be trust within the international market, you're gonna really have to look at some form of uh, some forms of standards that are going to properly kind of track uh, these carbon credits really throughout the value chain from their from their production until mm-hmm. their eventual retirement.
0: Yeah, Stephen. you you said in your presentation and in, in your paper, I think that the sector should get together on this.
1: I do. I will say I think that um, you know the in the mid to early in the near to midterm. It's going to be a stretch to come up with a single standard for reduced carbon or uh, carbon neutral uh, LNG cargo. I think it's uh, you know it's like trying to come up with a unified theory of the universe. Uh, I think that it's it's probably uh, a bit of a bridge too far and in, in the near to midterm. And the reason for that is that there are so many different goals that the parties have that aren't the same. as we talked a little bit about earlier. Some parties want to capture the benefit of uh, ESG claims. Others want to capture the marketing premium downstream. Others want to qualify for finance, or they want to sell the credits in an open market. And so everybody doesn't have the same goals. And so I think that where we should really focus, and, and this is important, I think we can really move the ball forward here. Focus on sort of the words you mentioned, Carl, earlier. Transparency and accountability. And so what we need is clear accounting of the carbon content in each stage of the product lifecycle and to be able to make that public as part of uh, the, the sale of, of, of a product, any commodity, frankly, but we're talking about LNG here, something like uh, the label on a food package, right, where it says what the dietary percentages are. Mm-hmm. We need to get that information standardized, the, how to measure that make it, tra- make it accountable, make it tran- tran- make it uh, transparent. Uh, and then buyers will at least know what they're buying. And if there's a green premium being paid, then it should be related to that product being greener. And, and Matt has a, has a great saying he says, you know, we may, end up being, uh, we may end up being like a gas station, petrol station, where you can buy economy, regular or premium. Mm-hmm. It may end up being like that. The key is information. Letting the customers know exactly what's in your what's in your uh, your cargo of LNG, it's in your natural gas, so they can make their decisions about okay, what do I, how green do I want to go? Uh, and I think that's going to be very important. And and then the they can structure the benefits accordingly.
0: Yeah, and who who should do this according to you?
1: Well, I think it's a, well the industry has to do it, but I think the policymakers can help lead. So um, so the industry, there, there was a tender, Matt referred to it earlier, uh, last year uh, by a certain Asian uh, LNG buyer, and they required in their tender, they said, okay, in order to bid, every company has to state what their carb, the carbon content of their cargo is going to be when it lands on our shores. You don't have to reduce it. You don't have to offset it. We'd really like it if you do that. But you have to state clearly what it is. We want that label." That's the right direction. Let's start there. I think governments have a great role to play. I think in COP26, you're going to see this. I think this is something that the US administration is going to be very involved in. President Biden issued an executive order uh, in January, his fifth day in office or so, sixth day in office, in which he, one of the things that, that he ordered the US government to do was along these lines, which was to promote um, standards, particularly in the in the nature-based solutions uh, area, but uh, standards for measuring carbon and measuring carbon offsets and reductions. This is what we need. We need to start with transparency. We need to start with accountability. This will embrace integrity. It will mm-hmm. also perhaps shame those players who are not doing what they should do, yeah. and will give us a, a market, an industry world in which, you know, we can tell what's real and what perhaps is is not so much.
0: Yeah. I understand also that there's quite a bit of interest from buyers, right? Uh, in Asia, buyers in Asia, for example, which uh, I didn't uh, expect so much, but uh, uh, yeah, yeah, and Europe. Okay. So, um, what I mean, as a final point, I think um, we should talk about the costs. Um, so, what do you think the additional costs will be, and, and will this affect the competitiveness of uh, of LNG?
1: Sure. Um, well, as Matt was explaining, I mean, the, the the costs for offsets are all over the map mm-hmm. um, and uh, with a range, you know, of more than 10x from high to low. And so uh, I think the extent we get more transparency, we get more accountability, that that delta will will shrink and you will truly hopefully price will become much more closely tied to the amount of green benefits that one is getting. Um, There will be costs in investing in in these changes, but the world wants clean energy. There's no doubt about that. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's wide acceptance that uh, we're going to need natural gas to to get to the the end, end line of where we all want to be. Uh, somebody, uh, a climate uh, scientist said recently, at a, at a speech he gave, he said, "If we didn't have natural gas, we'd have to invent it, mm-hmm. by which he meant we have to, we need it to back up uh, renewables. So this is important. Um, we have a climate, we have an energy poverty issue, we're gonna have to pay attention to here. And you know, you, you talk to uh, policymakers from Africa, they're not as excited about higher cost energy for climate I mean they're all pro climate but their their point is you know we we have a, a dramatically underserved continent uh, and the more expensive it gets this we won't be able to serve it anymore any sooner so uh, uh, so that's an issue we have to keep keep our eyes on that ball but um,
0: so some some final thoughts, right? I mean, what what uh, would your message be to the to the LNG industry at this point, um, Matthew? Maybe maybe I can start with you on this.
2: Sure, yeah. I, I think our, we have a couple main points of the LNG industry. Uh, first of all, the LNG industry, as it's undertaking the energy transition, this is this is not something that's really an existential risk for the industry, as as I see it unfolding. The LNG industry, you know, it's it's been faced with issues before, it has overcome them, and this is just another way to really stress uh, LNG's bona fides as really a low-carbon solution in the energy toolbox. Already, as you initially noted, Carl, kind of in your opening, um, LNG has significantly reduced and displaced coal. So it already has that going for it. And now if we can further reduce the carbon content of that LNG, as Stephen noted, kind of starting initially with MRV and eventually moving up to a more potentially robust reduction and offsetting regime, uh, that's really significant for the industry. And I think many buyers and countries will really be interested in LNG and continue to be interested in LNG as a real energy solution, not just in the near term, but really in the long term. So I, I think that's really kind of where the industry uh, sees this playing out.
0: Okay. Well, just one question on that. I mean, you say it's, it's not an existential risk, but but then st- still, I, you know, maybe I'm based in Europe. So maybe my perspective is a bit skewed. but it, it's like, you know, there, there seems to be also a lot of criticism nowadays of mm-hmm. fossil fuels in general, natural gas uh, also in, in included. So, um, what what should their response be?
1: Carl, I, I would just add there. So okay. uh, and fair enough, and I think it's it's very important and generally a positive thing when um, societies and populations and voters and then their policymakers push for for uh, for positive change. So uh, I think that's that's all a good thing. I, you know look, there there is there are changes that can and should be made. Uh, in the LNG industry in the short term that would help a lot um, you know, leading up to uh, you know, transparency and accountability you know, overall. But you know, methane reductions upstream are something that actually has economic benefit. If you're capturing fugitive emissions, that can be done, and quite a few players are doing that right now. That will reduce the, the, the carbon footprint of LNG and natural gas. Signing on to uh, either the World Bank's zero, um, uh, zero Routine Flaring by 2030 initiative or something comparable that recognizes that um, you know flaring should be uh, minimized, if not eliminated, uh, in non-operational, non-emergency situations, routine situations. Uh, that would make a big difference. I know both of those are topics in Europe in terms of uh, of natural gas and LNG and their role um and i think they'd make a a big positive step forward but as matt says ultimately what we need clear standards transparency accountability and then the market can decide uh what it wants
0: okay okay well thank you i think we'll we'll hear plenty of more about uh, green lng in the in the coming years um, because it seems to be an in, uh, important issue also to investors and policy makers and, policymakers, and uh, let's see how the gas industry responds to that and no doubt you um, will both be uh, ready to assist them uh, in this uh, task thanks um, for your uh, cooperation and for this uh, conversation
1: thank you Carl